Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Previously on Mary and Bill, an Ohio cold case. Was it drug-related? Was it connected to Charles Manson? I mean, you know, there's all those theories that were going on back then. It's not going to make me rest any easier. It just would be like, oh, that's why. Could there have been a bathroom in the front part of the house at some point? No. No, and I just know that because of plumbing. Okay. And lining up the plumbing. There's no plumbing on the front of the house. Miss Petrie had called at about 5.15 p.m. to say she was taking a cab from Grove City and was coming to the apartment. Mr. McGuigan said he left the apartment at about 6 p.m. and she was not there yet. Nobody saw or heard anything unusual. This is episode three, a dimly lit welcome. The summary police reports about the murders of Bill Sprout and Mary Petrie gave only the broadest outlines of what happened and when on the night they died. To recap, Bill and his roommate Tom were home in their apartment on the evening of Friday, February 27, 1970. At 5.15 p.m., Mary called from the suburb of Grove City to say she was taking a cab from there to the apartment. At 6 p.m., Tom left the apartment to go spend the night with, quote, some girls and my father. The next day, Saturday, February 28th, Tom returned to the apartment at 12.25 p.m. and found Bill and Mary dead. To fill in some blanks, I turned to newspaper accounts from the days after the murder. The information you'll be hearing next comes from those accounts, mostly the campus newspaper, the Ohio State University Lantern, and the Daily City newspaper, the Columbus Dispatch. These papers almost always cite a detective working on the case at the time, but since the information doesn't come from official files, it might not be quite as reliable. Sometimes, according to one retired Columbus cop I interviewed, and who you'll hear from in the next episode, the cops even gave wrong information to the press back then, as a way of guarding sensitive details that only the killer would know. Anyway, my editor Mike McIntyre and producer Mary Fecto helped me sort through the dozens of old articles about the case to piece together as much as we could about the timeline of the murders. After Tom left the apartment at 6 p.m., the next thing that was reported to have happened was that a cab driver dropped Mary off in front of the apartment house at about 6.30 p.m. So it, it took her an hour and 15 minutes from when she called the apartment to say she was coming and to get there. Now, who knows how, maybe it took her a while to find a cab. I don't know. Right. Maybe it was, uh, you know, she called and said, I'm going to get a cab. Then she called for yeah. the cab. Yeah. And then the cab should have, and it's a regular amount of time or the cab was delayed. Yeah. yeah. Police found and interviewed the cab driver who said he and Mary had made pleasant small talk about student life during the ride. The driver watched Mary walk into the building carrying a small suitcase, then drove away. This driver was questioned as a possible suspect, by the way, but he was cleared because the cab company he worked for was able to produce time logs that showed he'd continue to take fares that night after dropping off Mary. Next, Mary was reported to have called a friend, a girl or co-ed in the newspaper's language, at about 7.30 p.m. She'd planned to spend the night with this friend, the newspaper said, and was confirming plans for when she'd arrive. 
Remember, Mary was an observant Catholic, so it would have been right in character for her to not spend the night with Bill. Half an hour later, at about 8 p.m., a newsboy was out collecting payments for his route. He went into Bill's apartment building to collect a payment from another apartment, not Bill's. So I guess back then that was a pretty common practice that the newspaper delivery boy would go out at night and collect fees from his paper route (laughs) from the people on the route. Well, you're speaking to someone who uh, did that in his lifetime. (laughs) So yes, we would have a collection book and you would go out to each of your customers, knock on their door and say, you owe me four bucks and they'd pay you. That, and then he gave that to your, to your district supervisor when he'd come to your house and pick it up on Thursday. As he was walking out of the building, and this is one of the more chilling accounts, the boy found a man standing on the porch. A man he told police he'd never seen in the neighborhood before. A man who told him, quote, get the hell out of here. But the boy didn't get a good look at the guy. At 8 p.m. in February, it would have been pretty dark. And the only thing he could tell police was that the man was on the younger side. Around 10 p.m., another tenant or tenants in the apartment house saw Bill's apartment door slightly ajar, but they didn't go in to investigate. It was dark inside the apartment, the tenants reported, and there was a radio playing, not loud enough to disturb anyone, but possibly loud enough to cover up sounds of struggle. By the way, I was really hoping to find that tenant or tenants through those old phone books I mentioned in the last episode, cross-referenced by address. No such luck, though. If you are that tenant or know that tenant, please get in touch via our website, ideastream.org slash Mary and Bill. Same with the newsboy and the female student Mary called at 7.30 p.m. I'd love to speak with any of these three people. That sighting of the apartment door open at 10 p.m., caused the police to narrow the time of Bill and Mary's death to between 7.30 p.m. and 10 p.m., the newspapers reported. It was the last anyone reported seeing or hearing anything connected to Mary and Bill until Tom McGuigan's return more than 12 hours later, on Saturday at 12.25 p.m. It wasn't long after that that police and reporters showed up on the scene. One of the things that I remember is people, you know, sort of smoking all over the crime scene. <laughs> and you know, now you see all these, you know, sort of sort of gloves and hazmat suits. And then it was just there was no crime scene secured, really, or, or no, no real perimeter. I guess is what I was talking about, because we were everybody for the media who was there was, you know, standing on the sidewalk 20 feet from the door. This is Lou Heldman. He worked for the Ohio State Lantern at the time of the murders. He's one of the few reporters I could find who wrote about the case who's still alive. I reached him by phone at his home in Kansas, where he's now retired from his job as vice president of communications for Wichita State University. That's after he worked for years as a big city newspaper reporter. Super nice guy, by the way. He mentored a lot of students in journalism and storytelling over the course of his career, and his kindness came through clearly, even across multiple state lines. Lou Heldman said he remembered the murders vividly, not just because he wrote about them, but because he'd lived nearby. I'm not sure where I was living that year, but I had lived just basically a a block over or so on 9th Street. 
on West 9th, so I was real familiar with that area of campus. And uh, those neighborhoods around campus, some of them had been neighborhoods where professors and blue-collar workers and students sort of all lived. But over time, they became all students or just people down on their luck looking for really cheap housing. It was an area that you were conscious of the possibility of being mugged. I don't think most men would feel uneasy, but there'd be every reason for women to feel uneasy if they lived there. That was proved by the assaults going on in the area. This was a key point from the early days of reporting about the crime. At the time of Mary and Bill's murders, one or more serial rapists had been active in the neighborhood. Newspapers, including The Lantern, reported that police were re-interviewing five or six women who'd been raped in the previous few months, all within a two-mile radius of Bill's apartment. In fact, Bill's apartment had been close to the exact center of those attacks, police said. There was particularly the story about a woman who had fought off an attacker. That case of the woman who'd fought off the attacker, and also the others where the women had been raped, bore some similarities to Bill and Mary's case. The rapist was usually able to gain entry to the apartment without force, police told the papers, by pretending to need to use the telephone, for example. Bill's apartment, you might remember, showed no signs of forced entry. The rapist also was known to take special care to cover windows with bedspreads or other coverings, presumably so nothing could be seen from the outside. The only piece of furniture moved in Bill's apartment, the newspaper said, was an overstuffed chair pushed against a window to hold the drapes shut. And finally, sexual assault was the only possible motive that police could identify in Bill and Mary's murders. As mentioned in the police report, Mary had had some of her clothes removed. Based on those re-interviews, police released a composite sketch of a man the Columbus Dispatch called the North Side Rapist. The sketch showed two versions of the same face, one wearing dark-rimmed glasses, one without. The man depicted was white, with dark hair slicked back on the sides and brushed forward to a peak in the front. He had full lips, a wide nose, and dark eyebrows, and his face appeared to be on the pudgier side but his most distinctive characteristic was what appeared to be a series of pockmarks on his cheeks. These pockmarks were also noted in the written description that police released alongside the sketches. The man was between 23 and 26 years old. The description also said, five feet nine to five feet 10 inches tall, 175 to 185 pounds, and had brown hair and brown eyes. He was of medium complexion and build. To see those original police sketches, visit our website. The sketch was published in newspapers and posted on flyers around campus starting Thursday, March 5th, a little less than a week after the murders. This was horrifying for students. And of course, looking back on it, it must have been even more horrifying for parents because when parents send their students off, they worry terribly about their safety. And here was the evidence that all their fears were justified. 
After Lou Heldman graduated from Ohio State, he heard little more about the case, except that it was never solved. But he always remembered it, he said, for a few reasons. One, that the murder might not have even happened today, because detectives said one of the reasons Mary went to Columbus in the first place, rather than Bill visiting her in Cincinnati, was that Bill had to type a paper. They weren't supposed to be there. You know, when you talk about what's changed over 50 years, typing a paper and having to be at a particular place at a particular time to perform a particular action, you know, the world has changed. That never would have happened. There were two other developments in the investigation that first week of March 1970 that are worth noting. First, the only thing reported missing from Bill's apartment, aside from the small amount of cash taken from his and Mary's wallets, was a gold-fringed rug. Police thought maybe if the rug could be found, it could lead them to the killer. But alas, no such luck. The rug was found less than a week after the murders, in the back of a bakery delivery truck. The truck was parked in an alley about eight blocks south of Bill's apartment. Police said the rug seemed like it had been kept somewhere else for a few days before being thrown in the truck. Nothing about it yielded any clues. The second development was that the State Bureau of Criminal Investigation reinvestigated Bill's apartment on Wednesday, March 4th, about five days after the murders. And as the Columbus Dispatch reported that day, they made a startling discovery. Bloody fingerprints, which could be the most valuable clue police have in their investigation of the slaying of the two college students, went unnoticed for two days until outside experts were asked to examine the murder scene Columbus detectives revealed. Although it was embarrassing to admit the outsiders made the vital discoveries, detectives did not try to hide the fact. A story the next day said the fingerprints were located on the back of the headboard of the bed where Mary was found. Unfortunately, no arrests came of this discovery. In fact, the most significant consequence of the error was that Sergeant William Burnett of the Columbus Police Identification Unit was held accountable and transferred to another department. Then, mostly silence. Unfortunately, by July 1970, the papers were reporting that the police sketch of the Northside rapist had, quote, brought no results. The following month, police were saying they didn't hold out much hope the case would ever be solved. All this made me think back to the email that Detective Kroom had sent. Was the Northside rapist the person of interest he'd mentioned? Only now the police had some additional information that had helped them pinpoint a name? So that's the timeline of the crime and the initial investigation as publicly reported by both police and newspapers in 1970. But there's one other important source of information I was able to access from back then, and this one's another primary source, the full coroner and autopsy reports, including photos for both Mary and Bill. Hi, my name is Dr. Renee Robinson. I am a forensic pathologist practicing at the Office of the Chief Medical Examiner in Virginia. I reached out to Dr. Renee Robinson to help me unpack and interpret those reports. 
Initially, I thought she was still practicing in Ohio, where she went to med school and later worked for a county medical examiner. As you just heard, though, that is not the case. But she still agreed to help me out, something I'm really grateful for, because forensic pathologists from Columbus, while friendly, were reluctant to speak with me on the record. At the risk of stating the obvious, I want to flag that the discussion you'll hear next contains disturbing details of the violence that Mary and Bill endured. But I've worked hard not to include anything overly graphic, like descriptions of the photos, or that doesn't contribute much to our understanding of the case. Dr. Robinson started out by giving me some high-level impressions of the autopsy reports themselves. This is an extremely complex homicide for both of them. These would be multi-hour affairs in the morgue. So whoever did do these autopsies had their work cut out for them. And when you told me they were from 1970, my expectations were in the basement. However, they were a lot better than I thought. They were a lot more detailed than I thought. The same goes for the photos, she said. They're much clearer and more professional than she would have expected for 1970, when hasty Polaroids were more the norm. Still, while there are a lot of details in general, she said both the report and the photos are oddly myopic in hyper-focusing on certain details, like damage to internal organs, while skimming over some of the external injuries. She said this could be due to the fact that the autopsies appear to have been performed by the Ohio State University Department of Pathology at the university's hospital, by a resident trainee overseen by an attending doctor. Autopsies performed by academics tend to focus more on tissues and internal organs, she said, than would a county medical examiner, where there'd be more focus on looking at what happened during a crime. Anyway, the report for Mary starts with some touchingly personal details about what she looked like and what she was wearing when she arrived at the morgue. She was five foot four inches, 110 pounds, with hazel eyes and brown hair, the report said. She was wearing a blue sweater, light brownish gray blouse, and a blue gray checked skirt, all very much in line with the conservative style her sister Martha had described. Then the description of her injuries began. Well, she sustained three different types of injuries, and these were severe injuries. The first one was blunt force injury. Uh, Blunt force injury is an injury of the body that occurs when a firm or unyielding object comes in contact with the body. The blunt force injury showed up in three places on the back of Mary's head, likely the result of multiple strikes. Those strikes were strong enough to fracture her skull in multiple places, and they happened while she was still alive because they caused bleeding. As you probably remember from the first episode, it's always been reported in the newspapers that a bowling ball was used in the attack and would have been the thing that caused those blunt force injuries. But according to Dr. Robinson, There's no straight line to a bowling ball. There's nothing in the report to suggest that it's a bowling ball specifically. Could it have been a bowling ball? Possibly. Could it have been another blunt object? Certainly. From the photos, she said the blunt force wound looks like it was caused by something with an edge, not a smooth, rounded bowling ball. Anyway, blunt force injury to the head, whether caused by a bowling ball or not, is the first category of Mary's injuries. The second one is a probable strangulation. She arrived in the morgue with a ligature around her neck. It was described as a man's t-shirt tied around her neck uh, with a sock at the front. 
On the outside of her neck, under the t-shirt, were scrape marks called excoriations. Excoriations usually connotes scratching or removing the skin layer via the fingernails where a victim may be trying to loosen his or her ligature around the neck. The third category of Mary's injuries were stab wounds, 23 in total, all to her back, eight just under the left shoulder blade and 15 just under the right shoulder blade. The curious thing about these to me, uh, there were there are a couple different aspects. One is that all of them were described as being pretty much parallel and, ho- and horizontal. They're clustered in the same area on the left and the right side of the back, but they're all in the same direction. That level of precision is strange in itself, Dr. Robinson said. Usually stab wounds aren't so clustered in such a specific area and all with nearly the same orientation. Beyond that though, The pattern of wounds also indicates something about the timing of the stabbing. There's no other sharp force injuries on the body that are noted, no defensive wounds, nothing like that. If there had been a struggle during a stabbing, you would expect more multifocal, multidirectional stab wounds. I think at that point that she sustained these wounds, she was incapacitated, possibly even dead. Also, some of the stab wounds penetrated enough to cause injury to Mary's internal organs. But there's no internal bleeding reported around those organs, Dr. Robinson said. That's another indication that the stabbing happened after death. And that, in turn, is odd because Mary's official cause of death, as listed in her report, is just multiple stab wounds. I'm not entirely sure that these stab wounds caused death. If they were at least contributory, I suspect they were the final injury. One final element Dr. Robinson found odd about the stab wounds. They were described as slit-like and fusiform, essentially pointed at both ends and elongated. The pointed at both ends tells me that there's a possibility that this instrument, if it's a knife, could have been double-edged. Single-edged knives create a different pattern or different characteristic stab wound. They'll usually have a pointed end and a sort of the opposite end would be a little flattened off. This contradicts a photograph of the purported stabbing weapon as shown in the Columbus Dispatch in 1970. That photograph shows a single-edged kitchen knife. So based on the autopsy, you would question whether that knife was a murder weapon? Correct. Correct. I would be curious about a single or a double-bladed knife in that scenario. If a double-edged knife was used, it's possible that weapon was never found. Next, we moved on to Bill. He was 5 foot 10 and 165 pounds at the time of his death, also with hazel eyes and brown hair, just like Mary. He was wearing a light green shirt, tan slacks, a brown suede belt, tan loafers with purple socks, and a white t-shirt. He had a class ring from Xavier University on his right hand, a poignant symbol of how much he seemed to value his time at his undergraduate alma mater. Bill had the same three categories of injuries as Mary, blunt force trauma, strangulation, and stab wounds. Unlike Mary, he also arrived at the morgue heavily restrained by wire hangers, connecting his hands and feet to his neck. Blood pooled toward the front of his body after his death, consistent with the summary police report statement that he had died face down. Like Mary, the blunt force injuries were to the back of his head, and was strong enough to fracture his skull. 
these head injuries, much like Mary, they were sustained in life. He bled from them, essentially. He, too, had been strangled. In his case, he did have a shirt that was knotted about the neck and threaded through the mouth as if, and they say, they use the word in the report as if it's a gag. Yeah, so he did have excoriations about his neck, similar to Mary. Using that specific word implies that they think that he was trying to remove the ligature from his neck. And this evidence tells me, yes, that he was probably alive when uh, that ligature was placed as well. Let's pause here to talk about strangulation as an element in both Mary's and Bill's deaths. For Dr. Robinson, this is extremely significant in understanding the killer's motivation. Sexually related homicides usually involve strangulation or stabbings. And that the reason why they tend to occur together is because it's thought to be a form of paraphilia or on the spectrum of sexual sadism for the perpetrator. The sexual act is the driving force. The ancillary injury that occurs is serving two purposes, either to subdue the victim um, or to inflict pain, uh, which is part of that sexual sadism. But even just anecdotally, cases that I've done that have been strangulation homicides, nine times out of 10, there is a sexual component. If these crimes had occurred today, Dr. Robinson said she would order a rape kit for both Mary and Bill. Unfortunately, rape kits hadn't yet been invented in 1970. That wouldn't happen until about five years later, after the women's rights movement elevated law enforcement's understanding of rape and sexual violence as common motivations in crimes against women in particular. As things stand, both the photos and the reports reflect how all of that was still to come. There's no attempt to document any possible sexual violence against either of them. Documentation that could have helped point towards suspects who displayed similar patterns of assault. Finally, Bill, again like Mary, had multiple stab wounds to his back. And they're in the exact same location as on Mary, clustered just below the shoulder blades on each side. Eight on the right and eight on the left, for a total of 16. In his particular case, what they've told me in the autopsy report, I do think that he was alive at the time of sustaining these wounds. The reason why I think that these occurred in life is because he had hemorrhage around the organs or involving the organs that were affected by that sharp injury in a way that she did not. Documentation of Bill's wounds was less detailed than Mary's, so it's harder to say whether a one-sided or two-sided knife might have been used in his murder. One final detail the report said that both Mary and Bill had their blood tested, and neither was found to be under the influence of alcohol. Can I just ask, aside from having questions about the cause of death for Mary and your questions about the knife and the bowling ball being the actual murder weapons, what are your just overall takeaways from looking at these reports and photos? These are complex homicides. Typically, the types of homicides I see are one modality, gunshot wounds alone, stab wounds alone, um, sometimes even just strangulation alone. But to see blunt injury, strangulation, stab wounds, um, I don't want to say that's atypical, but it's certainly not every Monday. They very much appear to be sexually motivated. Different modalities of injury suggest a, a more protracted interaction. And I got to tell you, they've already weaved their way into my subconscious. I was dreaming about these cases the other night. 
When you say dreaming, what does that mean for you? Are you going over the technical details of the report in your mind? or? So interestingly, yes, that's usually the case. I'll be turning over some piece of evidence or some finding, uh, trying to look at it from different angles. It's, it's more of a cerebral intellectual activity. They're not usually scary dreams. The dream that I had about these two, it was a scary dream. Uh, it wasn't so much turning over evidence or, or trying to rethink things. Uh, it was it was a borderline nightmare. You know, I've seen cases of similar brutality or, or heinousness and and didn't necessarily have a nightmare over those. But why these two? I don't know. But uh, I hope I can get an answer to that in addition to all the questions that I would have for the uh, autopsy report. After talking to Renee Robinson, I wondered about the idea of an opportunistic Northside rapist committing these crimes. Yes, the sexual motivation fit, but as far as I could tell, the Northside rapist didn't typically kill his victims. With Mary and Bill, there was a sickening level of overkill, which backs up Martha's long-held feeling that this was a crime of passion. As for Dr. Robinson's skepticism about the kitchen knife and bowling ball being the murder weapons, was there anything to that? It was one more question to add to my growing list of things to ask the Columbus police. This next part is hard to write about because I feel a mix of irritation and self-recrimination about how it all went down. On March 11th, 2020, days before practically the whole nation shut down because of the coronavirus pandemic, I got a call at work from Detective Kroom. He said he and his boss, Sergeant Terry McConnell, were in the Cleveland area working on another case, and they wanted to visit my parents. Right now, I asked? Yeah, he said. Long story short, Even though I asked them to wait until I could be there too, the cops showed up at my parents' house without waiting. And because my parents are nice people, and probably like a lot of nice people a bit intimidated by police, they let them in and talked. I felt pretty angry. Couldn't they have called when they were first getting on the road that morning for the two-hour drive from Columbus? Or emailed first like they said they'd do? In either case, I would have had a lot more time to rearrange my day. Call mom. Calling mom. Mobile. Hello? Hi, mom. Oh, hi, honey. I just hung up on you earlier, I think. For now, I had to content myself with talking to my parents on my way home from work. So, how did it go? They just left? No, they left at, I think, one fifteen. Okay. So I was here about half an hour. Yeah? Yeah. How are you feeling? Uh, yeah, Oh, you know, actually, we're both hopeful because I missed this part because I had just walked in the door when they got here. But all I heard is they had, a, you know, a person of interest. And Dad said they said that it's what they say, Philip. They were close to solving it. That's what they said? That they were close. So, you know, that was heartening. But, yeah, I mean, we jotted down some notes. They were there three of them, first of all, which was surprising. My mom said three police officers visited, Kroom, McConnell, and a woman I'd later find out was police officer Stephanie Lubell. There had been no pictures shown, which disappointed me, and they'd asked all the questions my parents had expected, their memories of what had happened that night, 
and exactly what time, whether Bill had any enemies, why Bill's roommate Tom McGuigan or Gort had called my dad after discovering the bodies. And, you know, asked me, you know, questions about uh, being there and, you know, my roommates and Gort, of course, and all that kind of stuff. So they, they were, you know, asking a lot of questions about him. But he, as they said toward the end, it's because he was there. And they said, you know, they don't think he did it, which surprised me that they would even say something like that. Oh, wow. Yeah. Um, yeah. But he was a suspect because he was the first... You know, he was on the scene. Did they give you any more yeah. details about why they thought they were close to solving it? Apparently it's the DNA on evidence. They didn't go anymore, just said that. And they, they were really, like, nice and inclusive. Like, they said, if they were leaving, oh, we'll keep you posted. You know, got my phone number on the progress of the case, which yeah. I was surprised, too. So... Yeah, they seemed very, very open, you know. Yeah. They, any stereotypes I had about I felt a lot of things that night after hanging up with my mom. I was still frustrated that I missed out on the conversation, of course, but also relieved that the experience had been a positive one for my parents, that they hadn't felt interrogated or suspected of any wrongdoing. And heartened, like my mom said, that the police believed they were close to solving the case. That was a real bombshell. Maybe after 50 years, Martha and Pat and the rest of the Petries and Sprouts would finally get answers. I even allowed myself some hope that the police meant what they told my parents about staying in touch. Maybe that really could happen. Now that the cops had met my mom and dad, they'd see me as someone with a genuine interest in this case, not just a pesky reporter. But then, five days later, at war with an invisible enemy, the U.S. hunkers down to fight the spread of COVID-19. The world as we knew it fell apart. Ohio's shutdown happened on March 16th, 2020, one of the earliest in the nation. And like every reporter everywhere, I started working on nothing but COVID-19 stories all day, every day. And it would take almost a year, some big changes in my job, and the ever-growing passion of Mary's sister, Martha Petrie, to get back on track. Why don't I write a letter? Before I send it, I'll copy you. It's not even asking for information. It's understanding their progress, what or processes, etc. It seems that if you're going to bludgeon somebody with a bowling ball, it means you didn't really bring a weapon of your own or there was a lot of rage involved. When you see this type of violence on the bodies, it uh, could possibly be a crime of uh, passion. But on February 27th, police speculate Mary may have done something so sinful as to mark her a rebel and, perhaps in the eyes of a killer, in need of punishment. She may have planned to spend the night with her boyfriend. That's next time on Mary and Bill, an Ohio cold case. If you have information about the murders of Bill Sprout or Mary Petrie, please contact the Columbus Police Homicide Case Review Unit at 614-645-4036, or get in touch with me via our website, ideastream.org slash Mary and Bill. 
Mary and Bill, an Ohio cold case, is an IdeaStream public media podcast in partnership with the Ohio Newsroom. It's reported and written by me, Justin Glanville, with production and sound design by John Nungesser. Our editors are Mike McIntyre and Natalie Pillsbury. Our digital team is Annie Wu and Ryan Lowe, with graphic design and art by Lauren Green. Music is by Beyonce, Ben Von Wildenhaus, Eric and McGill, Daniel Birch, Mon Plaisir, and Robert Farmer. Marketing is by Matt Ehrman, Pat Miller, Matt Crow, and Anna Garvin, with support from Evergreen Podcasts. Thanks to Marlene Harris-Taylor, Mark Rosenberger, and Claire Roth. For photos, a timeline of this case, and a document library, visit our website at ideastream.org slash maryandbill.com.